Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good evening and blessings. And welcome to another installment of the Just for Freedom is Faith. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gitt and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347 324 Hello, this is Leslie Gist, the producer of the Gist of Freedom. I'm so happy to be here tonight to talk with you, Mr. Melton. Could you give the audience your full name and introduction? I'm Melton McLaurin. Um, I was a professor of history at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, for uh, some 25 years, and before that, University of South Alabama. I'm a historian of the American South and race relations. Wonderful. Now, I contacted you because, um, as you know, this past weekend on Saturday Night Live, uh, they had a new African-American uh, comedian uh, perform a skit about um, being a slave and being paired up with an uh, African mandingo, she made reference to being six foot tall and that she would just be popping out babies. Um, and we thought that we should talk about this subject from a historical um, point of view. And as I did my research, I came across your book for Cecilia the Slave. Could you uh, take over from this point and explain who Cecilia is? Well, Celia... Um was a slave who was purchased by a uh, medium-sized farmer, medium-sized farm, a farmer who owned it, and uh, he purchased her in 1855. Celia at that time was a 15-year-old girl. Uh, he purchased her to be, uh, well, to use an old-fashioned word, a concubine. Uh, he had two adult daughters living with him at the time. His wife had died a year before, and he was purchasing this girl clearly um, to serve uh, his sexual pleasure. She was also a cook, and she was installed at his home as the cook. Um, and this relationship, uh, call it whatever you will, would, would last for about five years, she would bear three children by him uh, and would eventually uh, kill him uh, and would be tried for her life as a result of that action. I don't know exactly how much detail you would like me to go into this story. It happened just outside Fulton, Missouri, in an area of Missouri called uh, Little Dixie. Well, let's let's blow it up a little bit. Um, okay. First of all, how common was it for white slavers to um, purchase black African teenagers? Like she was fourteen when he purchased her. Um, how common was it for them to purchase women for the sole purpose of sexual gratification? Well, I think that's hard to answer. It's hard to say how common it was. What for the sole purpose of sexual gratification? I think a better question might be, how common was it for slave women to be used by plantation males for sexual gratification uh, against their will, obviously? And the estimates vary from about 35% to about 50% of all female slaves 
uh, in the uh, American South being sexually abused by a male in the household. It could have been on the plantation, but it could have also been uh, in an urban setting where a, a lot of slaves were used for domestic labor. Mm-hmm. Now, are you familiar with the film 12 Years a Slave? I have not seen this film. I saw, I've read, of course, the, the uh, book that it's based on, mm-hmm. Solomon Northrop, but uh, I have not seen this film. I have seen a film that was made some years ago and shown on PBS based on the same okay. uh, document. Is there any um, common ground between what we saw in Solomon Northup's uh, experience and what Cecilia or Celia experienced? Well, I, as I said, I didn't see this particular show that, that you're talking about. I have not seen 12 Years a Slave. Um, okay. Well, in the movie, so I, I haven't read I can't comment specifically okay. on that question, but if you had a situation, which is what you always had under slavery, where women were under the direct control of an owner with no laws to protect them, and we can talk about that a little bit, but in, actu- in actuality there were no laws to protect them, uh, then you obviously are going to have uh, rampant sexual abuse. And that's, that was common throughout the American South. And how common was it for the rapist, as in this case, to get murdered by the victim? That was very uncommon. Um, for a slave to... Uh, take up violence against a master and carry it out to actual killing a master was tantamount to a death sentence for that slave. Um, uh-huh. And again, there was there was very little recourse. The slave would have to prove that they were acting in self-defense and in in fear of their lives, and that was impossible, almost impossible to prove. There were a few cases in, in the South where slaves were exonerated for killing their masters because their oh, lives were... let's talk about that. Let's please, please talk about any of those cases that you're familiar with. Because well, the, this the is problem the is the slave under that circumstance had to, to prove that their life were, was threatened. And the only way, a slave could not give testimony in court against a white person. Mm-hmm. So a, a slave couldn't make such a charge and go into court and testify. They would have to have corroborating evidence from a not only just a white person, but a respected white person, somebody who, okay. whose word was going to be taken over the word of the accused white man. Well, and that's, that was that's very, very that's rare. That's, that's common knowledge. But you mentioned that there were some cases that you're familiar with that it did happen. Those are the cases we want to talk about at this moment. Well, I, I, I can't talk about those in detail but it, because mm-hmm. I don't have them in my head, as it were. But oh, I know okay. that there were such cases, and I cite two or three of them uh, in my book. They're just footnotes. But it it did happen. It was rare, but it did happen in the southern states. But again, that that was a circumstance in which it happened. It would have had to been a very very unusual circumstance, and would probably had to involve a a very cruel um, attack on a slave or or whatever for the case ever to be uh, given any validity in the courts. Mm-hmm. Now, the greatest part about this story is that she almost got away with it. Could you explain to the audience exactly, you know, when I said she almost got away with it, um, to give the details of how um, she almost, uh, you know, was able to get vengeance uh, without being um, detected? Well, um, what she did, and here the story gets a little murky, 
And uh-huh. I think if you look at the trial record, you, you can see why I say that. But at any rate, what she did was once she killed the man, she had two children in her cabin. He built her a cabin, which also served as a kitchen for the house, which was not an unusual arrangement in terms of the way things were built because kitchens were fire hazards and they were always put away from the, the major house. So he built her this cabin. It was actually a brick cabin and um, with a nice fireplace for cooking. And when she killed him, what she did was burn the body in the fireplace, uh, pretty much completely burned the body, then had uh, this man, whose name was Robert Newsom, had his uh, grandson, uh, a boy about 12 years old, take his ashes out of the uh, fireplace the next day and go scatter them along a path leading away from uh, the kitchen. There were a few larger bones which she broke up and hid under the hearthstones in the house. And so um, she had disposed of the body rather completely and uh, had broke down under questioning, especially when, and I think this is an area of the, of the story that, that is psychologically interesting, but not that interesting historically, she had entered into a relationship with one of the male, there were five male slaves there. And one of those male slaves was named George. And he had urged her to break off her sexual involvement with the master, which was something she didn't have any power to do. So she why would also, you think he could do that? That's, and I can see why you would think that part of the story is murky. Everyone well, I think she didn't have the power well, that's to what, take anything off. That's what she said. That's what she said, that this is what happened. And that, that was what motivated her. She, she had gone to the, the – this man had two adult daughters living with him. She had gone to both these daughters and asked them to intercede on her behalf, and they didn't. And it would have been difficult for them to do so because they were dependent on their father for a place to live, and one of them was married with three children. So this the other one was an 18, 18-year-old daughter. And It seems as though, I have, to, I have a, a quick question. It seems yeah, as though sure. in this peculiar institution called slavery that the white families that enslaved Africans um, made it, it was just normal practice to allow the white slave to just be a rapist and it was acceptable, you know, behavior amongst the entire family that she could feel comfortable comfortable enough to go to his daughter. It seemed like everyone knew that this is what this man did. Um, and you said like thirty five percent of the the slavers at least at uh, least thirty five were rapists, and it was common practice, and the whole family knew. And you know, how did you know? Just give try to explain the psyche of a white family that's enslaving African teenagers and using them for sexual gratification. How could a whole family be a part of something so hideous? Well, the way it's difficult to explain to a 21st century audience, but at that time, white females had very little power. Um, If if the master of, of a plantation was going to have his sexual way with a member who was in the plantation, it was very hard to stop that from happening if you were the man's wife. If, if you want to read uh, some of this in a, um, an urban setting, there's a book, um, and I'm, I'm just, gosh, uh, all of a sudden, um, the name just, just goes, um, okay. it's, it's a very you can come famous. back to it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and she's a, a slave in, in North Carolina, another state, mm-hmm. but she's in an urban environment, and her master is always trying to uh, have intercourse with her, and what she does is go out and enter into a relationship 
with another white man to protect her. There were all there were all sorts of individual arrangements made by these female slaves to try to protect themselves against this uh, sexual exploitation, which sometimes was ongoing for years, as was the case in the Newsom family. But the two women that she went to, I I wouldn't read into this that the women Mm -hmm. that she went to, one was 18 and one was in her 30s, approved Mm -hmm. of their father's relationships with with Celia, but they were pretty much powerless to do anything to intercede on Celia's behalf. But we can infer that they knew about it. Oh, sure, they knew about it because she mm-hmm. she actually went to them and said, you know, please stop your father from coming to me for uh, intercourse, in part because and she was pregnant and in part because uh, of the pressure she was getting from this male slave, George. Mm-hmm. So, the you know, the it's hard for us to believe that the pressure from George was more important than the pressure from being raped. You know, I would think she just would want the rape to stop, period. Of course she did. Of course course she did. Mm -hmm. And what else I find interesting is that, you know, now we have this stereotype of black men being known as rapists. Historically speaking, when you say 35% of these slavers are raping no, that's not what right. I said. I said 35 to 50 percent right. of all okay. slave women were sexually yeah. abused. That's, I don't know how they that's can flip a, that's this That's a different set of statistics. But 35. Yeah, very big. I'm glad you corrected yeah. me. That 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 needed to be said. But where does this this uh, myth come come from? That you know, African American man is the one that has this. Um, you know, this desire to be a rapist. It's throughout well, history. Well, that myth, that myth actually did not become a. It's always been in the background, and mm-hmm. it goes back to the idea that blacks were super sexual. If you read Othello, for example, which is not set in the American South you see exactly the same concepts. When um, Othello is depicted in uh, that play as typical of Africans who have uh, exaggerated sexual appetites. Hmm. So it goes, it's very, very deep in Mm -hmm. the psyche of white Europeans, not just mm-hmm. Americans. Now, that carries over, clearly, mm-hmm. in, into the United States. But that, that myth of the black rapist does mm-hmm. not become a central theme in uh, American racial history, a central theme, mm-hmm. until after the end of Reconstruction, as mm-hmm. the white... Uh, power uh, elites were trying to regain control of society, and one of the problems they had was trying to make sure that the the lower income whites would follow their lead. And Mm -hmm. so what they did was to create this image of the black rapist, and any time a political contest happened to come up that threatened the power base of the white elite, they trotted out the image of the black rapist and said, you know, we'll protect your women and your daughters from this ever happening if you'll keep us in power. And that lasted, that mythology lasted (laughs) all the way into uh, the George uh, H.W. Bush administration. If you, I, I don't know mm-hmm. how old you are. Willie, if you remember the Willie. George H.W. Bush ran um, an ad that was essentially 
uh, a black rapist fear ad when he ran an ad about somebody that had been paroled by Michael Dukakis, uh, a, a black man who had been paroled and then had raped somebody. And that ad was actually dreamed up by a political operative from South Carolina. And he came out of a culture where, where those kinds of ads were very, very common. Mm-hmm. All right, let's get back to Celia. And um, I also posted on my Facebook page the story of Joanne Little. Joanne Little. Oh, do yeah. you know anything about her? Yes, I do. Uh, I yes, have not Larry. written a book about it, don't know it in detail, but uh, she was um, – that's a North Carolina story. Happened about oh, I don't know, 150 miles north of me, and it happened when I was a young man. Mm-hmm. And so, can you just tell us what happened? What do you know? I know you didn't write a book, but as oh yeah, North she Carolinian. was. Uh, she was. Uh, I, I can't remember what she was charged with, but she was in jail in some little town in, in northeastern North Carolina, and basically she would, was being abused by a guard, a male white guard in the jail, and she killed him. I, I think she stabbed him. I'm not absolutely Eleven sure, times. but I, I think she stabbed him to death mm-hmm. in his cell, and uh, the, the story was that his pants were down around his ankles when she killed him, and she escaped. And I can't recall what happened after that. Uh, I know she fled, but at this point I'm just relying on memory, and that's as far mm-hmm. as I can get. But again, it's uh, a, a fairly um, unremarkable story, except that she killed the, the perpetrator. Yes, and she went free. Uh, unlike, I don't, unlike Celia. I don't know what happened to her in the end. I just mm-hmm. can't remember. I know she fled. I can't remember if she went to Cuba or not, but she, she fled, and I believe she fled the country, and I don't know what eventually happened to her. I, I'm just drawing a blank at that point. Oh, okay. Now, is it true that Celia, when she was in prison, that someone helped her break through before she was um, executed? All the evidence points to that conclusion. She had okay. been convicted. She had been convicted of a crime, mm-hmm. a murder. Was sentenced to hang, and her lawyer, who was a white lawyer, and a, a slave could have a lawyer in in those circumstances, was trying to appeal the convention to the Supreme Court uh, to the Missouri Supreme Court. Uh, and he couldn't get a stay of execution. So what happened was the record says that somebody took her out of her cell to prevent her from being executed prior to the Supreme Court's ruling. Now, what happened after she was taken out of the cell, we don't know. What we do know is where she was recaptured. And what she did, she had two children, both girls, at the farm. And she went back to try to see those children. And the oldest son of the man that she had killed caught her there and turned her back in. And the Supreme Court did uphold her conviction. And she was executed, as you know, in December of uh, 1855. Mm-hmm. Um, do we know who the supporters were? That you know, do we know anybody that stood by her who represented her? No, uh, we do know that the three lawyers, and there were two young men that were appointed to help this older, uh, very well-known lawyer. He was an ex-congressman who led her defense. And my surmise in the book is that he was picked by the presiding judge as someone who would not cause a problem. He'd just, you know, go through the motions, and she'd be convicted and hung, and that would be it. Mm-hmm. But for whatever his reasons, and he was a slave owner, he 
tried to mount a audacious defense of Celia and one that, if it had been allowed, would have threatened the very foundations of the institution of slavery. And if you want me to tell you what that was, he argued that as a, a, a woman, regardless of the fact she was uh, of African descent and she was a slave, she had the right to defend her personhood mm-hmm. against the threat of rape. And therefore, she was not guilty of murder. Now, if you go back and look at the fact that 35 to 50% of all slave women were sexually abused, such a ruling would have really challenged the power of the masters. You also have to remember that her children that Robert Newsom sired became Robert Newsom's property as soon as they were born. Mm-hmm. So it would have it would have been a ruling that would very much have undermined the entire system of of slavery, and because it would have given slave women control of reproduction, which was not something that planners were willing to do at all. Now, at some point. Um wasn't it true when they were um, slowly or gradually abolishing slavery that the children of the enslaved woman was free at certain points? No, no, that was never, never. true. In, no, it was never true in the United States. It was In the United States, unlike in Latin America, mm-hmm. the, the status of the mother totally determined the status of the child. If the mother was slave, the child was slave. Didn't matter who the father was. The status of the mother always uh, followed. So there so was the, there was some so the mother was mm-hmm. the mother was a slave, so her children were slaves. And since she was owned by Robert Newsom, her children were the slaves of Robert Newsom. He was their father and their master, their owner. So and he could sell them. As a matter of fact, her two children were later sold away from that farm. Okay. So do we know whatever happened to them? Besides All we know sold? is, and, and I, I guess at this in the book, and later on I found proof of it, they were sold to uh, a slave owner in a, a an adjoining county about six months after their mother was executed. Because the family would not have wanted them around for psychological reasons. They just wanted to get rid of them, so they sold them. That's, that's ironic. For psychological reasons, um, this is a family that is aware that the slaver, the head of the household, is raping this teenager, has children yep. by her. Yep. They can endure that, but they can't. And they can endure her being executed for defending herself. But oh yeah, having her children—they were very much in favor of her execution. Hmm. Hmm. Well, uh, we are very much in favor, you know, that she killed him. And I don't know, like in the case of Nat Turner, um, there was a lot of uh, uh, new laws passed to prevent more um, resistance, acts of resistance similar to uh, Nat Turner. Were there any laws put in place after she killed him? You know, weren't they afraid that this might catch on other uh, black teenagers? No, no, I don't don't think that there was any uh, uh, resulting legislation because this was Mm -hmm. an individual incident of Mm -hmm. uh, a woman who had been pushed past endurance and struck back, and she beat the man to death. Uh, (laughs) The Nat Turner situation is a totally different situation, and Nat Turner, Mm -hmm. the Turner Rebellion is a a real turning point 
in the history of slavery in the American South because it scared Southern white uh, slave owners to death. Mm-hmm. Because it was organized resistance. It was an organized rebellion. It was not just one slave being pushed beyond the limits by one master, whether or not the master was typical, and, and lashing out and killing his, his nemesis, or in this case her nemesis. It was a, a plot. It was mm-hmm. organized. It, not very well organized, but it was not just one individual that had mm-hmm. come to the end of his or her rope and used physical mm-hmm. violence to stop uh, whatever activity that, that they felt they had to stop. But these individual acts did have an impact on legislation and on the economy of slavery because when you look at the patty rollers, um, the insurance they had to have, the guns that the slavers had to keep by themselves by their side. So these individual acts were uh, constantly on the minds of these slavers. It wasn't it wasn't a comfortable lifestyle to to live amongst um, these black Africans who, like you said, would get fed up and kill them. It was very well, it, it was, was it, it wasn't a it wasn't an unnatural act. It was very a commonplace. I, I don't think Southerners would like to talk about it as much as far as history. Actually, but it, mm-hmm. actually violence against slave masters was really relatively rare. Mm-hmm. Now, so the why, did, why was violence, it necessary to have insurance? Why did they have to have insurance? And why well, you had insurance for a totally different reason. You had insurance mm-hmm. because let's say you had a slave out that you had paid at uh, let's say 1855, and you're talking about a, a male slave in good health and, mm-hmm. and relatively young. That slave might be worth from 1500 to $1,800. And let's say mm-hmm. a tree fell on them during a logging thing. Mm-hmm. Then you didn't want to lose that money you had invested. You insured slaves for the same reason you insured, insured other property, to insure against mm-hmm. loss. It didn't have anything to do. With, with the rebellious aspect. Now, the guns, mm-hmm. the slave codes, the Titan slave codes, the, the fact mm-hmm. that they had to have passes to go anywhere off a plantation, all of the, all of the slave codes were designed mm-hmm. to try to prevent any kind of armed resistance, and particularly any kind of coordinated armed resistance. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, if, if you look at the reality... And mm-hmm. this is just a matter of, of fact. There are very mm-hmm. few instances of outright armed rebellion. Uh, you have uh, a, a but isn't maybe, it true that um, the Southerners deliberately suppressed that information for fear that it might uh, grow and catch on to other slaves? That is nothing. That they absolutely the tried to control the way they're slaves and a whole lot of other things, but. Right. Um, they they so certainly would have tried to suppress any concepts of uh, organized rebellion. Yes, mm-hmm. and it's common, you know, when you read, uh, you know, the, the different uh, versions of history, you find that the Southerners, with the John Brown incident and all sorts of um, rebellious acts, they try to squash it. You know, they never talked about any of the victories, only the miseries of our legacies. So coming. What do you, you mean know, the victories? I, I'm not. The victories, uh, meaning that when the the African Americans or the Africans at the time were successful in rebelling, and to the point where legislation was changed, um, where um, it contributed to our freedom. Uh, when you make the slavers uncomfortable. Uh, when they have to call in the militia or call in the government for assistance because they can't put down a, a rebellion, these these uh, acts, when you look at them as a whole, had a great deal to ending and abolishing slavery, even though the Southerners would probably say it was Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. But the reality is the Underground Railroad and all these small acts, tiny acts, the little Sicilians, um, 
added up and was a serious impact, more so than the history books would like to tell us. And I, I would disagree with you on that. If you look at mm-hmm. the history of slave rebellions in the United States, and there are any number of volumes on this, there mm-hmm. was never a successful rebellion. Most, mm-hmm. of the, most of those that tried to get organized, like the Denmark Vesey Rebellion in Charleston, mm-hmm. were revealed actually by people, by African Americans who were involved in the planning of it. They mm-hmm. were absolutely crushed and mm-hmm. horrendous uh, retribution on the part of those people who were involved. And mm-hmm. it, but it is true that whites were tremendously afraid of mm-hmm. any kind of successful rebellion. And, and Turner's Rebellion in the 1830s was um, an example of how uh, that fear just swept the entire South. I mean, it happens in Virginia, but people in South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi were all aware of it, were all aware of the, of the potential consequences. And so you did mm-hmm. have a real tightening mm-hmm. up of restrictions on African Americans, including Correct. not letting them be taught to read and write, um, uh, any, any number of restrictions. Uh, about mm-hmm. passes, the whole development of a, of a slave code uh, that was much stricter. So there is this constant fear on the part of whites. Right. That's absolutely and that's true. A, and that's a victory in itself. And that's a victory well, if, in itself, and I'm pretty that, sure. If it, it's certainly something that was there, that was grounded right. in reality. But if right. you look at the ability to control the slave population... The slave mm-hmm. population remained under control by the Southern whites right even into the Civil War, and only when Union troops reached a region, then the slaves mm-hmm. would, would leave sometimes en masse from mm-hmm. their plantations and, and, and go over and uh, try to get under the protection of the Union Army, the original uh, name for these slaves was contraband, and mm-hmm. there, it was a huge problem for the North. You know, what do you do the with the contraband? Time, during these um, revolts, um, you know, it's it's a given that the white people fled. They had to leave their homes. Their homes were burnt up. Many many blacks, even in the North burnt up their, their farms, burnt up their plantations, um, broke up their tools, uh, poisoned them, did stuff to their food. Uh, I mean, it was all sorts of individual types of acts where That's a white true. slaver could not feel comfortable. You know, the first scene in 12 Years a Slave really ticked me off when they showed, um, I think, about 12 men, black men, singing and clapping uh, to a song um, that two white men, unarmed white men, I think one had a stick or something. And it made it seem as though that these two white men could control all of these black men with uh, little or no weapons. Um, And the truth is white people had to live in constant fear, constant fear, and had to gang together with the patty rollers. You know, they they constantly had to look over their shoulder because well, they do you know what do you know what the patty rollers were? Who they were? Um, I know they had they got together. They were like little militias. They had to go around at night and and take turns to patrol the area because they knew that um, someone would escape. They had to be armed twenty four seven. They could not sleep without their guns. They had to make contractions, crazy contractions, so that slaves, like shackles, and that's what really bothered me with 12 years of slave. Nobody was shackled. I mean, the slavers had to come up with a whole lot of devices. It's been a lot of energy on making uh, different types of shackles to keep the blacks enslaved. So it well, wasn't what, an easy what I task. Think, what I think you're saying, and I would, I would agree with this, 
is that there was a whole lot of psychic energy used on the part of whites because of their fear of slave rebellions and of individual acts of resistance. But there was also a very large cost with the patrol. The patrollers were actually men between certain ages, usually from about 17 or 18 to 40 or 45, who were legally obligated to serve on the slave patrols. <laughs> and so every white male, slave owner or non-slave owner, was involved in the use of force to maintain the system. Slavery ultimately resisted on the brutal, naked use of force to keep people enslaved. That's the way the system worked. Wow. I didn't know that, but that that even um, underscores what I'm trying to say as far as how we resisted. And, and that says a lot. To be a minority in this country, that it would take so many people with so much brain power to keep us enslaved and still that we're, you know, still we were able to um, gain our freedom says a lot about our spirit, who we are, and that this myth that we were um, meek and weak is so untrue just by what you just said. You, you had to recruit people who were not even uh, owners or involved with the slave trade or, or, or plantation. You didn't have to recruit them. That was a legal obligation. It was just like, you know, working on the roads or doing anything else that – that was a, a part duty. of being a member of the society. You had to do it. It was it was a legal obligation. Well, so the, the white South rested intense. on this use of force. No question about that. Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. primarily, you see, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. primarily, it was a threat of use of force, but it had to be constantly maintained. And any time you had a rumor of a slave revolt, and there were always rumors of slave revolts in the southern press. Sometimes they were true, sometimes they were not true, mostly they were not true, but it, it scared white southerners to death, and their vigilance would increase, the patrols would go out more often. Uh, and one of the major uh, laws in all of the southern states was it was illegal for a, a black to own a gun. They couldn't right. have a gun. So, right. I mean, they, they used every uh, effort they could to maintain control over this uh, group of people who were uh, a primarily, first and foremost, um, a, a labor force that they were not going to let go. But secondly, that was deemed to be uh, a, an inferior group of people. So you've got both race well, and economic reinforcing but, the white uh, mentality and fear. Now, now, so you can't be too inferior if you are a minority and you have to use your whole population to hold these people in captivity. You can't well, be the, too inferior. Was, the inferior person is the one who has to use violence yeah. and has to recruit your whole society to keep these people down. The one who is inferior is the one who has to pick up the gun. If you were, and for the the blacks as a minority to be able to come out of this, and I don't know if you know, but I've done research with the Underground Railroad. Yeah. And and that was a nonviolent act. The very first civil disobedience. That, that was one of the um, means of resistance, escape, absolutely. Right. And it was the most clever and the shrewdest and highly intellectual movement and the most superior type of movement ever in history. Um, so for someone, you know, to say that these people were inferior, just the mere fact that they were able to use the laws, to use codes right under the nose of the slaver not just one slavery, but as you just said, a whole entire society, and they were able to outmaneuver them and play their game and learn how to read and write and change their laws and work within their system, says who is, speaks of who's superior and who's really inferior. 
these are minorities. These are courageous well, I, people when you who use, are able to speak. When you use terms like in, superior and inferior, I think you're falling just, into the, the sort of dynamic that white Southerners used. Remember, whites, I said that white Southerners believed these people were inferior. Of course, they weren't in, inferior right. persons. But they right. had to use, the whites had to use all the power they could muster to maintain control. And when that control began to break down, if you had the Union Army coming in, the whole facade collapsed. And, you know, but... But, but it started to collapse. It, it the was a part. The idea of the inferiority of those of African descent... Mm-hmm. is a prevailing concept in mm-hmm. certainly the Western world. And when I say the Western world, I'm talking about Europe and the Americas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is still, unfortunately, a powerful uh, stream of thought in not just the United States, but in mm-hmm. Europe, in France, mm-hmm. in Great Britain, and whatever, and you see so and, much and, of it, for example, yeah, and, and in the to, resistance I, to I Barack Obama. I want to, right, you're right, Barack Obama. I want you to hold a thought because I want you to talk about the owner because what you're saying is true as far as the owner of the Clippers and what he was trying to teach a, a Mexican, uh, African, uh, African-American slash Mexican mistress about um what you just said, these racist views. But before we go into today, what's going on in the news today, let's uh, continue this conversation about um, the whites who were murdered as a result of trying to stand up and help end slavery or help rescue an enslaved person. For instance, right. in the story of William Steele and Underground Railroad, their lives, as you alluded to with the um, – the white women, the, the wives and the daughters, a white man's life was worth even less, um, even to the point with the three-fifth clause, that even though they had no right to vote and owned no property, they were still counted as a citizen, and they couldn't vote. So Who is if this you were a poor, poor, white, poor white man and women, no, they if could, they didn't they own any vote. property. In, in most southern states, um, after the 1830s, they could vote. Well, I'm talking about prior to the 1830s. Um, the prior right, to the 1830s, white, it would have been more difficult for them to uh, to vote, but the, the three-fifths clause does not apply to white to white people. That that was that had to do they with... They were counted? With, they were counted? No, no that's not what the... Th- that's not what the three-fifths clause is about, but uh, that, that's another whole subject. Okay, the three-fifths well, clause refers only to slaves. No. It not. refers it only was a northern, to... It was a northern clause to make sure that the southerners didn't get uh, the, the, the population, the numbers in the population census, which determined how many representatives each state would get. Yes, but it only applied to African Americans, to slaves. It did not apply to to white males. So did they count white males as part of the population? Yes, of course. So if they couldn't vote, if they didn't own any land, they got credit for those white white men, poor white men and women that couldn't vote. No, white white women, of course, no women could vote. That's not even in the right. in but the they conversation. Got, Right. But white but they men, as particularly citizen. after 1830, you pretty much have what is called universal white male suffrage in the American South. Right. So that if you, if, if you were a white male, you could vote pretty easily. Prior to the 1830, white, poor white men, landless white men, were counted as citizens and could not vote. Whereas, That's correct. Uh, and whereas that doesn't have anything slave, to do with the three-fifths clause. Right, but, but yes, it has a lot to do with it. As a slave, no, it doesn't. A slave wasn't. They didn't get credit for a slave full citizenship because the Northerners didn't want them to have any political power. So blacks had more rights back then than poor, poor landless white people. 
And, no. and that goes to my point. Okay, we, we'll talk about that another show. No. But, we, we, we would just have to disagree with that. I, okay, you, all right. The three-fifths yeah. clause really has nothing to do with the white males of the South. Nothing whatsoever. Okay. Now, in the William Still story, he was known as the father of the Underground Railroad who used um, technology back in the 1800s, the way we use Facebook and Twitter, he used um, all means of communications to get help and assistance and raise money throughout the world for the cause of abolishing slavery. And in his story, his brother, who was known as Peter Gist, um, paid for his freedom and then attempted to uh, have his family rescued out of Alabama by Mm -hmm. a white a white abolitionist. This white mm-hmm. abolitionist was able to get the family, get all the way to Paducah. I can't remember. He got all the way Probably to was Paducah, Kentucky. Yeah, Paducah, and, and he got to Indiana, as far as Indiana. Right. And then he was captured. And I'm thinking from my experience from watching Roots that they were going to kill his entire family, or at least chop up a toe or a foot or something. But instead, they killed Seth, the white abolitionist. And there's another story I posted on my Facebook page about um, one white um, abolitionist they called trying to rescue um, some Africans. They put SS on his hand, burned it on his hand, slave stealer. And then there's another story of a white, uh, um, a white slaver who went against the law and continued to try to import slaves into America after the law was passed, saying he couldn't. And under Lincoln's administration, he was hung. So if you want to touch on the victims, the white victims, and how this society that you talked about that pulled together to keep blacks enslaved, how they treated each other and killed each other over the life of a slave that they valued more. They value that, that slave value um, more than they value their own fellow white brethren. Well, of course. I mean, you're talking about economics here, but you're talking about, you know, a really, really, really very, very complex subject. And for example, there's a book called Modern Medea, which is about the Margaret Walker case, which is what inspired Tony Morrison's Beloved, which is very mm-hmm. similar. It's about a, a family that tries to escape, and they they get, leave from Kentucky and go over into Cincinnati, and everything that happens is a result of that. They had mm-hmm. underground railroad connections once they got into uh, Cincinnati. And, mm-hmm. uh, it, you, you know, it's just a very, very complex uh, subject. But how but, common was it for them to kill white men over a slave? It would not have been common, but it would not have been uh, common for white men to be doing things that directly challenged the power of the master and particularly was mm-hmm. taking property away from the master. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it would not be surprising that individual whites who were involved in the activities of the Underground Railroad would have been seen as pariahs by the powers that be among Southern white slave owners. And they murdered Even to the point of, if necessary, to stop their activities, killing them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and this, uh, are you familiar with the story of the, the gentleman or the slaver who was uh, hung under... Lincoln no, 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 I'm not. But uh, okay, we'll move on. I, and so, you know, I can't talk about things. A particular mm-hmm. case, I don't know about at all. Mm-hmm. So, now, you did touch on a point where you said you mentioned Obama, and I cut you off a little bit. I apologize. But that's okay. Um, in the context, and I want you to go back to that statement you said about Obama. In the context of Celia. And I don't know if you heard about the Saturday Saturday Night Live skit 
Um, no, I Dr. didn't. And, and Saturday Night Live is is not a program I watch. I do know okay. uh, mm-hmm. the young woman that you're referring to because she made news as the first mm-hmm. African American woman uh, as a cast member there for some time. Mm-hmm. And um, the the incident in the news uh, that's taking place right now is the owner of the Clippers. He allegedly. Uh, I'm very familiar with that. I've heard a lot a lot of chatter okay. about that. Yes. Right. So this has been a real racist uh, week as far as race relations when it comes to African-Americans. And, he and the guy about, out in Nevada who was the darling of the Tea Party and Sean Hannity and others until he finally put his foot in his mouth about race, which should have, not, mm-hmm. which should have been no surprise to anybody. I'm not familiar with that story, but you can explain. No, it was a, this is a guy who was going to – actually, he had – uh, arm was encouraging armed resistance to federal agents who were trying to go out and collect money from him because he'd been collecting, grazing his cows on federal land and refusing to pay fees for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And so they, the, the Tea Party, the right, made a huge hero out of him because he was standing up to federal power. And then he made some very, very inappropriate comments about African-Americans, and then the Tea Party said, oh, my God, we can't have anything to do with him. Well, I mean, I'm sorry, but a lot of that mentality is tied up together. But that a that a 80-year-old man, or <laughs> this guy's probably 70-some years old, and, and by disclaimer, I, I'm 72 years old. Uh-oh. You, you know, if you're raised in that kind of society, Right. And these concepts have you've been able to articulate them within a certain group all your life. Mm-hmm. It's out there. I mean, look at all the things that have been said about Obama. I just saw a bumper sticker down here that said, "You've had your laugh now. Bring out the real president." Mm-hmm. You know, you see that all the time. It it's deep. Well, it's in the and culture. It's not going away in the next in my opinion, 100 years. Uh, and that's, I think that's a pessimistic thing to say. But, I, but, I, but that doesn't mean that there those, can't be mm-hmm. major advances and developments, and there mm-hmm. certainly have been, mm-hmm. but there are always going to be for a while the people who hold on to this view that African Americans are somehow less capable, you know, less able, and uh, mm-hmm. it, it's an ingrained belief and it does not yield to facts. Right. Belief. That's so true. And mm-hmm. and like you Darwinism. cannot. Yeah. Well, it's it's just a belief system. And when people believe something, I don't care what mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. You cannot tell them there's this fact, this fact, this fact, this fact, and they say, "Well, now I won't believe this." Much. <laughs> so many times. Well, it's much deeper than that. It, it, the problem huh? is, why do they want to believe it? It's not what they believe. Because it, it makes what, them feel good. Them? That's the short answer. Okay. And and to me, you know, they have to do something within their own lives to feel good. And then they won't have time to put so much energy into nonsense and hate. Well, you and I would agree. Spent, you you and I mm-hmm. would agree on that 100%. But right. uh, We could just focus but, on, you know, doing what's right on a day-to-day basis. There won't be any time in your life. There's a saying, idle time is a devil's workshop. Idle what space, I would say time. for anybody, regardless of race, gender, or whatever, mm-hmm. if you have to mm-hmm. put somebody else down to make you feel good, you mm-hmm. are in bad need of some help from somewhere. Yes, this is correct. This is correct. I'm going to have to so, get off of you. Yes. Okay. okay. And that's a great point. And I'm going to let you go. You stayed on way past the time that you uh, told me you would come on, and I appreciate it. Um, but I know you have other books. Do you want to tell the audience the name of your other books and how they can uh, purchase them? Well, I'll, I'll tell the book, See You a Slave, which they can get on Amazon. It's in paperback, and um, it's, it's been used in so many classrooms, they can get it for almost nothing now. <laughs> it it okay. really has Widely, widely used, but you can get it. Uh, but another book that people might like that has been used in, in a lot of classrooms as well is something called Separate Past, P-A-S-T, 
S, separate past, Growing Up White mm-hmm. in the Segregated South. And that's mm-hmm. a book that came out in the, in the uh, uh, 1980s, talking mm-hmm. about many of the themes that we've talked about tonight. Great, great. Well, I thank you for coming on the show at the very last moment. Um, I enjoyed this conversation. I learned a lot. And hopefully you'll come back on again. Well, give me a call sometime, and we might be able to arrange that. And thank you, thank you for me. It's nice to thank see you. that Celia still is being read, and and the the uh, what is in, involved with Celia is still being talked about. That's that's good. It is, and I'm glad that you put it out there for us to um, to learn and and take a peek into history. It's a sad, sad story, but it's it one is. that we need to to learn about and to um, honor her and those who suffered. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.